This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of When Football Was Football, and we'd like to shout out to Greg Norman of Melbourne, Australia, for sending in the idea for this week's episode. We're actually going to be talking about the 1940 Chicago Bears championship game. So if you are listening, don't hesitate. Contact the Sports History Network with your ideas, and we'll see if we can get them on here. So one of the greatest motivators in sport is the positive reversal of insults from your opponent, whether they be real or imagined. Coaches call it motivation, and anyone who's ever played in an athletic competition understands the meaning of that simple word, motivation. In the NFL, players can use motivation as an incentive to prove that their coach, media, fans, opponents, or whoever was wrong in doubting their abilities. Teams can also utilize motivation to embellish an us-versus-them attitude or mentality before a key game. More often than not, a certain motivation can add genuine kindling to any athletic endeavor. Prove them wrong is a familiar rallying cry. As years have rolled by, however, NFL players and teams are usually quite careful in their remarks or actions with the advanced media that we see today so that they do not provide their opponents with any of this magical motivation stuff. You know how that goes if someone insults you before a game? Usually you're anxious to prove that person wrong. Again, whether it is real or imagined, you just don't want to provide your opponent with any advantage. Keep it off the bulletin board. Back in 1940, the Washington Redskins rolled through the NFL's Eastern Division with a nearly spotless 9-1 record. One of the team's toughest games of the year occurred on November 17th when Washington edged the Chicago Bears 7-3. The Bears would eventually capture the Western Division crown, but the team was a bit peeved with that close loss to the Redskins. When the game ended, the ball was on the Washington one-yard line after the Bears tossed an incomplete pass in the end zone that many on the team thought was the result of an uncalled pass interference by the defense. This prompted the Chicago Tribune to comment that penalties more than anything else can be blamed for the Bears' failure in Washington. Officiating frequently has left much to be desired in the National Football League this year. Despite the league's earnest effort to effect improvement, the criticism, however, has been almost entirely concerned with what officials do not call. In this case, the receiver for the Bears was Bill Osmanski, and he recalled, There I was, hands out, just waiting for the ball. Sid Luckman's pass was perfect. Someone grabbed me from behind and pulled my arms tight against my sides. The ball hit my chest and flopped to the ground. The gun went off. I shouted a protest to the referee. And then Mr. Hallis came out running. In his autobiography, Hallis admitted, I was furious. I was ready to tear the referee limb from limb. I probably used all the words I learned up on the Chicago streets and in ballparks and training camps and maybe even made up a few new ones. That's how mad George Hallis was after that non-call in the end zone. The lack of a call on the game's final play only added more fuel to the Bears' fire when coupled with the 80 yards and penalties assessed against the Bears during the loss. The reaction to the Bears' complaints was quickly voiced by Washington's owner, George Preston Marshall, who politely countered by stating, and I quote, 
The Bears are a bunch of crybabies. They can't take defeat. They are a first-half club. They are quitters. They are the world's greatest crybabies. And that's the end of the quote. When both teams later claimed division titles, the NFL championship game was set up for December 8, 1940. Once again, the Redkins would host the Bears, only this time it would be for all the marbles. Down deep, the clever Hallis, always a master motivator and manipulator, enjoyed the challenge of possibly reversing that initial outcome with Washington in the title game. In addition to his fine football team, which now had a 7-3 record, Hallis was also eager to kindly remind his players about the less than laudable comments from the owner of the Redskins, who had an 8-1 record. Hallis said, His comments were reported coast to coast. The words burned into my mind. I did not let the players forget them. You can understand why the game for the championship took on a special importance. In the days leading up to the big title game, the Mutual Network announced plans to broadcast the game nationwide on over 100 radio channels. It would be the first time that the NFL received this type of significant national media coverage. Special trains were booked to carry Bears fans from Chicago eastward to the nation's capital for the title contest, and tickets for the game quickly sold out. In fact, the Richmond Times in Virginia reported that it would be easier to gain access to the White House than it would be to secure a ticket for the Bears-Redskins game. The paper said, Tourists who want to see the inside of the executive mansion merely have to stand in line and try to keep from looking like suspicious characters when they reach the door. You can stand all day and night and line outside the gates of the, quote, World Series of Professional Football and look like an army general. You'd better have a ticket. Senators and representatives who usually can get into anything in the Capitol are frantically making calls trying to round up tickets. The condescending feeling about the Bears easily swept across the Washington organization, even to the point where reporters from Chicago newspapers were barred from witnessing any Washington practice sessions, as Redskins coach Ray Flaherty explained that they were not allowed in because, quote, they were sent on ahead to scout for the Bears, end quote. However, to make things equitable, Flaherty also locked all other reporters out as well, including those from his home city of Washington. The game itself would pit the league-leading passing attack of Washington against the NFL's best running game of the Bears. Flaherty was quick to praise his quarterback, Sammy Baugh. He said, Sammy Baugh is having his greatest year. He reported much heavier than ever before, and he retained the extra heft throughout the season. It made him a stronger player, and we were able to use him more than before. Sammy Baugh totaled 1,367 of Washington's 1,887 yards through the air, while the Bears used a committee of running backs to gobble up 1,818 yards on the ground to top the league. Ray Nolting was 373 yards, and Joe Maniesi, with 368, led the Bears in rushing. And, of course, the Bears also possessed a marvelous young quarterback named Sid Luckman to bolster the signal-calling duties. Finally, game day arrived in front of a capacity crowd in Washington of 36,034 attendees. The receipts from the game would guarantee that each member of the winning team would return home with $873.99, while each representative of the losing squad would be consoled with a check for $606.25. On paper, 
The final statistics look fairly equal. Both clubs picked up 17 first downs, and the Washington Passers completed 21 of 49 tosses for 229 yards. The Bears, as expected, dominated on the ground, picking up 372 yards, while Washington was limited to just 31. The big, big difference, however, was turnovers. The Redskins turned the ball over nine times with eight interceptions, five of those by sub-quarterback Frankie Filchok, and one fumble loss. The ugly spot on the Redskins statistical ledger was a primary reason that the Bears waltzed literally to a, get this, a 73-0 victory. Still the largest margin for any game in the 100-year history of the NFL. So, where did it all go wrong for Washington? First of all, the turnovers were a killer. And then Washington had absolutely no answer to the Bears' sparkling T formation. If one would like to include that subtle influence of motivation we talked about before into the recipe, that would work as well. As the Bears' Bill Osmanski proudly remembered, When we came into the dressing room, we saw that Mr. Hallis had pinned the clippings, those are the quotes from George Preston Marshall, to the wall. When we were ready to go out, he pointed to the clippings and said, That's what people in Washington are saying about you gentlemen. I know you are the greatest football team ever. Now go out and show the world! We almost broke down the door trying to get out of there. Kind of gives me chills here 80 years later. In the first quarter alone, the Bears scored three of their 11 total touchdowns, with those three coming on runs from Osmanski of 68 yards, Luckman on a one-yard scamper, and Maniasi on a 42-yard run. In the second quarter, Luckman completed a 30-yard scoring toss to Ken Cavanaugh to provide the Bears with a comfortable 28-0 halftime lead. Later in the day, Hallis would tell reporters that the first TD by Bill Osmanski was a key play of the game, he said. The turning point of the game was the second play after the opening kickoff, when Bill Osmanski got away for 68 yards and our first touchdown. On that first play, a quick opener from a man in motion to the right, we learned four things about their defense. Four things this play was supposed to tell us and four that were important to our success. Thereafter, I felt confident we could get enough points to win and how right he was. After the first Bears TD, Washington had nearly tied it up when Sammy Ball lofted a perfect pass to Charlie Malone in the end zone. Unfortunately, Malone dropped the pass and Ball was later asked if that touchdown toss, if it had been successful, would it have made a difference in the game? Well, yeah, said Sammy Ball in the Southern drawl. The final score would have been 73-7. to Of course, when the Chicagoans returned to their locker room at the half, those famous clippings, compliments of the Redskins owner, were still hanging from the wall. Hallis said, I pointed to the news clippings, I told the players, they also say that we're a first-half club. As such, things quickly went from bad to worse for the host team in the third stanza. Hampton Poole, George McAfee, and Bulldog Turner all returned interceptions for touchdowns, and Ray Nolting added a 23-yard scoring run. It was now 54 to nothing after three periods of play, and the Bears were not letting up. And another problem surfaced, which was not anticipated at the start of the game. Due to the many extra points and ensuing lost balls, officials were running out of footballs and politely asked the Bears to refrain from kicking in the event that they scored additional touchdowns. Ellis complied, and three more fourth-quarter touchdowns, one with a two-point conversion, left the Redskins staggered on the short end of a 73-0 blowout. 
By the end of the game, the usually loyal Washington fans were roundly booing their team. A displeased George Preston Marshall told reporters after the game that, Some of our boys apparently have been playing on their reputations. It looked as if some of our lads had their fountain pens in their pockets, trying to figure out who was going to get what share of the playoff money. Well, if Marshall was critical of his players for believing their own press clippings, no one in the loser's locker room could have possibly understood the sheer impact that the clippings from the Washington owner himself had on the victorious Bears. We hope you enjoyed this episode of When Football Was Football. Next time, we'll share a unique story of what is probably the worst season ever for the league's oldest team, the Cardinals. Please join us again, and we look forward to hearing from you as we discuss When Football Was Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Thank you.